Welcome to Liberty's Talk, the podcast of Liberty's Journal. I'm Celeste Marcus, managing editor of Liberty's and the host of this podcast, on which I talk with our writers and the larger Liberty's circle about whatever is on our minds. On this episode of the podcast, I'm joined by Holly Brewer, who is a professor of history at the University of Maryland, to discuss her essay for us entitled Race and Enlightenment, the Story of a Slander, which appeared in Volume 2, Issue 1 of Liberty's. In that essay and in this podcast, Holly does an intellectual history for us of an idea which Ibram Kendi refers to and he quotes in his book, Stamp from the Beginning. In that book, Kendi attributes the idea to Locke. Um, Holly explains why he is wrong to attribute the idea to Locke, what the origins of that idea in fact were, and what is at stake when we misunderstand our own intellectual history. Hello, Holly Brewer. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. You're welcome. Delighted to be here. So we're discussing the essay that you had for us in um, volume two, issue one, called Race and an Enlightenment Story of a Slander, which is about, um, well, actually, no, I'm going to let you, can you, can you give like a brief summary of, of the essay before we get deeper into it? Yeah. I think the most important question that the essay raises is why are we looking to the Enlightenment to understand the origins of modern racism and arguing that, in fact, it's part of, it's an artifact of what, of the way prior scholars have collected and sorted evidence and chosen things that are worth reading um, and they were choosing them in order to tout the virtues of the Enlightenment, of early modern science, of democracy, of possibly capitalism, uh, of, of modern ideas about justice in many cases. And scholars came along later, rightfully so, and said, what about racism and colonialism and dispossession and injustice? And in trying to then discover the source of those, they looked to the same sources that earlier scholars had collected to, to as a sort of eminent scholarship that would become the source of um, these other ideas that they wanted to promote. And they haven't, scholars haven't looked enough at the distasteful, um, the many other sources that were distasteful, that were not deemed worth reproducing from the early modern period, and it's there in what I describe as essentially the QAnon of the 17th century, for example, that you can find the really distasteful ideas about race. And very often, Enlightenment scholars, and in this case, John Locke, was pointedly arguing against it. And prominent scholars, such as Ibram Kendi and his stamp from the beginning, have followed along the same path and pushed it even farther to say Locke was actually the origin of these ideas when in fact Locke was arguing against them. That's, that's the core of what I was saying. So was this a conscious conceit when, when these scholars were basically cherry picking um, the sources that were palatable to enlightenment ideals? This, this was going on for uh, like two centuries, I think. Is that? Yeah. I mean, exactly. And they knew that that's what they were doing. Was this like a, yeah, was this, was this a self-conscious effort? Yeah, it was very self-conscious. They were choosing, 
they were choosing from past centuries the things, the materials that they thought people in their century would find inspiring and worth reading. And they didn't, for the most part, reproduce the materials that they thought were uninspiring or shouldn't be reproduced or distasteful or or we're support report you know supporting absolutism or slavery or other things so it was a very conscious effort by scholars to reproduce ideas that were foundational to to uh, educational systems to universities to just to modern science to ideas about democracy and justice so this is this is like a self-conscious effort. They know that they're they're picking specific texts, but as in the case of John Locke, sort of, and and I think Godwin is the example you give. This maybe a better example, um, which we'll, which we will talk about. Um, they were responding to other sources that were less palatable. So while these while these scholars were cherry picking these sources, it was as if they were like picking. They were like printing half a conversation. Exactly. Exactly. And it is confusing, and it's really confusing to modern students. For example, with John Locke, who's so influential on America's Declaration of Independence and on modern ideas about democracy, his works are frequently read, particularly um, his second treatise of government, which is which is about really basic arguments for democracy and consent, government based on the consent of the governed. But when he's assigned now in many political theory classes, for example, professors will just assign the second treatise. They won't assign this first treatise where he's explicitly arguing with a lot of older, you know, other ideas about um, absolutism, about hereditary power, about monarchy. Um, They just, and so it all appears in a vacuum. And I had an experience once where I was, you know, uh, offering a lecture for somebody else's course and where I gave them some of the other readings that Locke was writing against. And and the professor in that case said it was one of her best experiences teaching that material because um, as the students themselves said, all of a sudden they understood why they were reading Locke. Before when they were reading Locke, they were they were thinking, oh yeah, well this is obvious, everyone must agree. When they read who he was arguing against, then they understand the important intervention that he and and I would add other radicals like him were making at that point. They were saying, no, no, government shouldn't be based on the rule of one hereditary king who's all powerful. Other, you know, other people should have a voice. And there's such a thing as um, as people having inalienable rights. I mean, there's um, these were pretty radical ideas at that point. Yeah, it 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 in. It's much more interesting, actually, to discuss these ideas when you realize what people like Locke were arguing against. Right. And it is like, you can you can understand Kendi's thought process or people like Kendi's thought process. Right? Racism must have come from somewhere. These are the sources that we have. And I didn't know. I didn't know. I, is this well known that like most of the sources that we have were cherry picked in this manner? So if you're looking for, and you can find, it's not it's not impossible to find racist sentiment in the text from the enlightenment that we have. But when you, when you realize as you so skillfully show in your essay, how, how much more overt and ugly these other texts were, it makes a lot more sense. Um, like that this is, our, that this is our inheritance and that we don't even know that this is our inheritance. Right. 
Honestly, just to answer your question, I think if I were to ask colleagues in philosophy departments, in political theory, in history, if I were to ask them, you know, even in literature, if I were to ask them point blank, are you conscious that the texts that you usually assign are cherry picked because they were, you know, seen as forward looking or inspirational? I think they would all, you know, most people would say yes on some level. On the other hand, it's not a conscious part of how they teach or how most scholars do research. For the most part, these choices have been made so long ago that these are texts worth reading and others are texts not worth reading. That a lot of, you know, particularly in philosophy departments, you kind of hop, skip, and jump from worthy texts to worthy worthy texts, sometimes over centuries, and you don't really think about what came in between. Right. I mean, you're not you're not only when you're when you're compiling a curriculum, you're not only trying to give students a sense of everything that we're maybe not at all like giving students a sense of everything that was published in a certain era. Um, you're also trying to give them a sense of the core, which is like anthropologically interesting for their for their own understanding of themselves, because these have been central texts for such a long time. But when your essay begins with um, Jean Baudin, is that how you pronounce his name? Jean Baudin's essay, uh, or sorry, his work, Records of Civilizations, Sources, and Studies. And this is this is an ugly text. I mean, this might be the culprit for the origin of this very pernicious um, conception of African Africans. Um, why was that translated? Why was that a text? There has been some attention to some of the predecessors of liberalism, if you will, or um, enlightenment texts. And Jean Baudin is one of the most important of those predecessors. He was especially important in 16th and early 17th century France. He was also incredibly important in, in 17th century England so Sir Robert Fillmore, who who Locke is explicitly responding to in the first treatise of government, for example, he literally plagiarizes a lot of Baudin's texts. And Baudin is the most prominent justifier of absolutism in early 17th century France. So he's really influential on on those ideas about monarchy um, as, as they were developed and expanded under Louis XIV, you know, who everyone sees as an absolutist monarch. So that's why Baudin is read. He's not nearly as widely read as Locke, and that's why his works, this particular work, was translated. But it's actually a pretty unusual translation and reproduction. It's the only edition of it that I know. It was done in the 1950s, never reprinted, whereas Locke's two treatises have gone through hundreds of editions been translated into many languages, et cetera, et cetera. So it's an actually a pretty rare translation. And okay. I think for the purposes of the podcast, can you just take us through the intellectual history? Begin like by saying what it was that Kendi um, attributed to Locke um, and then the intellectual history of that idea. So Abram Kendi attributed to Locke the idea that African women had sex with apes and that they were thereby they were there by creating and part of a separate species that was not human. And in making that claim, Kendi was 
pointing to and quoting actually slightly inaccurately from an obscure sentence in the middle of a paragraph towards the end of Locke's huge essay concerning human understanding. And um, I, if you just read what Kendi says, it does sound as though Locke, and he said Locke was the first person to bring this up in English, and he was so prominent that in referring to this, that in, that in bringing this up, he was starting a horrible racist idea that then took root elsewhere. And, um, and to be fair, a little bit of these claims had been made by other scholars earlier in part, and but they had been a little, and I think he was just reading them and not Locke himself, um, but they had, they had put the quote marks elsewhere and he just moved the quote marks, I think. But, and I think, you know, he really wanted to understand where this came from and it made sense for him to say it comes from Locke, if you assume that early America and early modern England were liberal, that these ideas were the most influential, then you ha that's where you have to look for racism. Whereas my perspective is very much that <laughs> early America wasn't particularly liberal, neither was early modern England. This, in fact, was the heyday of, in as much as absolutism, ex absolutism existed in England, this was the heyday of it. Representative government was relatively weak, um, there were a lot of other more powerful ideas about hereditary right and status, um, about monarchy that, in fact, were were um, far more powerful. And so, I, I guess it might be more most helpful for me to explain how I was reading Kendi and got to this point and was really puzzled. And this is what I talk about in the article because I had read every single page of Locke's essay concerning human understanding, particularly looking for racism. When I did an independent study with a, when I was in graduate school with a prominent political theorist named Carol Pateman, and then I had sat down and discussed it with her at length, and I had found nothing like this. So I, was, I, I brought down my copy of Essay Concerning Human Understanding, and I started looking for, he didn't have the page number cited, so I had to go back and find it all. And then I reread it, and it didn't say what he said it did. And so then I just sat down and started rereading bits and pieces of things that I'd read elsewhere um, and started piecing together what the intellectual history actually was. Because it, it was clear to me that Locke was responding to someone. And I had already read Godwin and I remembered Godwin saying something. So I went back and looked in Godwin. And when Jordan, who's a wonderful historian of... of Race, racism, we published a book in the 1960s, um, White Over Black, it's called. He had a couple pages on this where he clumped together Locke with a couple earlier um, thinkers. And, so, and then I just did, um, we now have amazing search engines on early English books online and other sources, and I started tracking references. And any, sometimes there's often a clue somewhere else. I was able to track down... And it was a little confusing at first, but I was able to track down this first discussion to someone named Thomas Herbert of the, the first claim that black women had sex with apes and were therefore a separate species. The first claim in English or the first claim? 
did Jean Baudin say that specifically? Or? No, he did not. No, he, he sort of, he said something about possible monstrous births, and he said something about possible sex between humans and animals in hot climates. But he said nothing about a separate species. That's, that's a different, <laughs> that's an entirely different way. And so there was a claim by some uh, Spanish monk that maybe Peruvian Native American Indians, um, Native South American Indians in Peru had had sex with um, monkeys. And um, and there was an earlier observer who, English observer who said, who claimed he might have witnessed that. But that's a different claim than saying they're a separate species, that they're not human. And that was the step that Thomas Herbert took. And what was so interesting was, so 1664. And what was so interesting was realizing when I went back and looked at, first I looked at the earliest editions of his work and it wasn't there. And then I real, I mean, I think I found it in the 1664 edition and then looked back at the earlier editions and realized it wasn't there. So he actually traveled. So Thomas Herbert... I can't remember exactly the year he was born, but he he was about 20 years old when he became part of a delegation to go to um, to India, by sent by the English, um, and they tr he traveled briefly along the African coast with someone named Thomas Rowe on that embassy in the 1620s, and when he came back in the 1630s, he published an account of his travels, and there are some racist elements to it earlier. Jennifer L. Morgan has written a bit about that um, in her first book, for example. But um, but there were none of these claims. And he published two editions in the 1630s, and, and again, none of this was there. Uh, what happened was in 1664, he published a new edition, and to it he added extensive discussion, or extensive claim that he had seen Black women having sex with with apes and drills is I think the word he used and that they, um, they had children with them and that they were therefore, and he went on to put together arguments that the Africans weren't completely human. Had he even gone back to Africa? No, he, not, he didn't. I mean, the other remarkable thing is other scholars have shown that he added at that point extra chapters to his travels, claiming he traveled to places he never went in the 1620s. The guy is just—he's just a charlatan, right? But he was—he must have been cashing in on a sentiment. Like he knew that it would be lucrative for him to say these things. He knew that it would be lucrative, and in fact, his cousin and patron at court is was at that point co-sponsoring with James Duke of York, the king's brother, later king himself, um, the Royal African Company, which was starting English formal involvement in the slave trade. And so his book um, was promoted, was accepted by the court. This was a period when everything that was printed had to be approved by the crown, by crown censors. So it was approved for publication. Um, it was promoted. It went through several editions in the 1660s and 1670s and was clearly widely read and talked about it. So after that, you begin to see all these references, um, not only in Godwin and in that brief reference in Locke later on, but all over the place, these claims start to, you can start to see, and it all goes back to this guy, Thomas Herbert, who I, evidence indicates he, he talks about having a lot of money in 1664. 
Um, he's been knighted by the king. Um, he's this is a good thing for him. He's 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 making a racket out of making these claims and um, and they're although as far as I can tell they weren't scientifically accepted at that point. In other words, he's publishing nothing in the Royal Society collections. As far as I can tell, he's not a member of the Royal Society, so he's not an accepted scientist even even though that might have been. Um, you would have assumed that would be the case. He's not. He's, he really is a charlatan. People are, can see through him. And yet... Oh, they knew he was lying at the time? I think, I think the fact that he wasn't giving this paper at the Royal Society means that this was a step suit too far for, for them. Yeah. Even though the Royal Society was sponsored by the Crown just as it was the Royal African Company. So he was trading on popular sentiment that was not like it wasn't approved. It wasn't palatable to say these things in like polite company, but people relished reading these things. It's like, is that? I, I would say something slightly different. I don't think this was popular sentiment. I think he was hoping to legitimize the slave trade with Africa for people who were asking questions. And so when you look at Morgan Godwin's account. Um, so he, Morgan Godwin was a minister in Barbados, Virginia, first Virginia, and then Barbados in the 1660s and 1670s. So during this whole period and in his, um, Negroes and Indians advocate, which was published in London in 1680, Godwin recounts arguments that he had with, in Barbados with people who were justifying slavery and they were arguing about exactly this. So in other words, you um, trying to see a group of people as non-human Africans claiming the claims that Africans were not human was justifying dramatic mistreatment, dramatic legal inequality. And it was explicit. And in fact, at one point, um, Godwin actually said, uh, Godwin actually said that, uh, I think I say I quote this towards the end um, that it was explicitly used in order to justify the slave trade. Yeah, that there was the yeah that justify slavery in the slave trade that they that the owners liked this argument because it it helped them to legitimate their mistreatment to justify the exclusion of Africans from rights and he I believe he actually uses the word. Um, rights. And I have to look up the, the passage. Go ahead. Just ask me another question and I'll look it up. Okay. Um, I guess what I'm, what I'm trying to understand is Herbert published this new edition, which went through several um, editions in 1664. In 1690, it, that's when Locke, is that when the treatise concerning human understanding was Sorry, that's when that that's when the essay was the essay, which is which is very long, um, was published. So does that mean that in those like twenty six years, this idea, which Herbert was the first one to like make explicit, um, had become s sort of just part of the intellectual ether? People people thought this now in a way that they hadn't thought it in like say sixteen thirty. I don't think it's fair to say people thought it. I think people heard it and a lot of people doubted the claim 
some people were spreading this claim. So this is the QAnon analogy. Yeah, I think it's much, really, really important to not think, look back on the 17th century or any century and say, everybody agreed with them. Yeah. Just as things are debatable today, they were then, that the people were aware of this claim by 1690 in intellectual circles, in court circles, that I think is undoubted. Did everyone believe it? No. I think others, like Locke, were pretty skeptical. I did find the claim from, the quote from, from Godwin, by the way, it's on page 309 of the article, and it's, it's quite remarkable that he says this, this explicitly. Um, Godwin noted in 1680, by those whose interests were at stake, whose wild opinions were promulgated by the inducement and instigation of our planter's chief deity, Prophet. Godwin acknowledged that, quote, they'll infer, and he's talking about planters, they'll infer their Negro's brutality, quote, unquote, that that's all of a quote, quote, they'll infer their Negro's brutality, end quote, to justify their reduction of them under bondage, disable them from all right and claims. So that's also in quotes, quote, justify the reduction of them under bondage, disable them from all right and claims, end quote. So he is saying they have rights. He's saying they should have rights. And this is, these arguments are literally being used legally to say, no, no, they don't have legal rights. They can't, they can't charge a master with abuse like an apprentice could. Because they're not human, right? Because they're because they're not human, okay. And so when yeah, so it's you can see the impact of them. They're being used. Um, they're being used to justify um, horrific legal policies to slavery. It's literally being used to justify slavery. Right. And if you're trying to, if you're Kenty or any, I mean, if you are like a a, a citizen of the modern world and you're trying to understand where these ideas came from. And of course, like not everybody, not everybody knows how to do this kind of research. It's very confusing um, to try and like, to trace this, even though we know that this is, this must, must have existed. But you're saying that somebody like Locke would not have said something like this. It, it was like a fringe radical theory that was part of part of the justification for slavery and colonialism. Yeah. And I think it wasn't just Locke. There were a lot of other people who had doubts, but it's, it's hard. And, and Godwin is amazing at saying them outright, but um, Godwin actually published his text and um, without a printer, there's no printer listed. And in his second publication, um, his second major publication, um, which essentially called the slave trade a pact with the devil, it appeared in 1685 when, um, just after James II became king, he was also governor of the Royal African Company at the same time and in charge of the slave trade. And then he he disappeared. And I have his burial records and died well after that. And I can show that all three of his main sponsors at court, um, all three of his main mentors, including Locke, were prosecuted for sedition um, in the following year. Um, And and the Bishop of London 
for letting their ministers say ministers or or themselves saying things that were seditious that were um, criticizing the crown. So at this point, it was illegal to say anything critical of the crown. Calling the slave trade packed with the devil was um, when the king was the head of the slave trade and an active supporter of it was was actually a dangerous thing. What I'm trying to say is that people who spoke up about this were often silenced. And Godwin himself, in the beginning, in the introduction to his second major book, said, people have told me to be silent, that it's dangerous. And I know I'm taking my life in my hands and publishing this, but I can no longer be silent. So does do you think that the reason that the, that Locke and the the two others were tried for sedition was was not for making like claims that were as powerful as Godwin's, but for making similar claims? Or I guess the 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 excerpt from Locke that you have in the essay was that sufficient to be tried for sedition? Well, I think well Locke had actually fled already um, to Holland. And James II tried to extradite him without success. So he didn't actually get tried. Um, the Bishop of London was tried and had some of his privileges removed temporarily by, um, and James actually created a new court in order to do so because the old, some, it's, it's complicated. I won't even go into it. And then it got disbanded again after the Flourish Revolution in 1688. Um, and then the third person who was a judge lost his position as a, as a county court justice. Um, um, and aside, I think maybe, he, no, he was a county court judge. Um, he lost his position as a consequence and had a, faced a heavy fine. So they were also more prominent than Godwin was. I mean, Godwin could, I mean, maybe he died of natural causes, but also um, it was it was a little tricky to punish him, and I mean I don't know. We just don't know. I do know that I found records of the the um, Roger Lestrange, who was the official censor for the press during this period, and who he had privileges to arrest people who printed or wrote anything seditious, and he was throwing people in jail without trial at this period. So I found records in the um, metropolitan city courts of London of people being kept in jail without trial on the orders of Roger Lestrange. And then a month later, when I see the next set of records, it'll say more in jail or dead in jail. Um, so what I think what we have to realize about this period is that not only are people like um, John Locke and other and Godwin and others um, essentially speaking truth to power, but it's actually harder to hear their voices when we just look back at all these sources because the the really powerful voices were the ones enforcing loyalty to the king, non-criticism of the order of the you know the order of the world that the king wanted, which in this case was under James II, certainly under Charles II as well, was to promote slavery across the empire. How powerful was the opposition to slavery at this period? I understand that they were being quashed, but I mean, it's hard to say. Most of what we find is just in bits and pieces. Um, of course, some of the strongest resistance was coming from enslaved people themselves. There was a attempted slave rebellion in 1675 in Barbados, for example, that was quashed. Uh, the the truth is, it's it's really hard to tell because the way we know about the past is often through written sources 
And if the sources aren't, they couldn't publish them, then it's hard, it's hard for us to hear them. But I would say there was a lot more opposition to slavery than we've often understood in this period. And you can see it even, for example, one of the other things I've written about, um, actually in an article I have just coming out with the Law and History Review, is, um, is the ways in which the high courts in England created what was called what I call a common law of slavery for the empire. So if you think about how the, how the Supreme Court now, some decisions have an immense impact across the whole United States in terms of their implications for everyone. So the, the high courts in England, too, created a common law that, that applied in the colonies. And um, in particular, they, they intervened um, in 1677 um, under Justice Rainford in a, in a case that said, Butts versus Penny, that said um, that people could be considered simple property for the purposes of the law and that all the powerful rules that protected the ownership of things could be used to protect the ownership of people. This is a 1677 case. And I can show how it had ramifications across the empire. But I can also show that the defendant lawyer in the case um, was saying, no, no, this is ridiculous. People can't be property in that first case. And that there's a whole bunch of cases afterwards where you keep having um, lawyers who keep saying the same thing in this, even in the late 17th century, even when the king is in charge of the slave trade. Um, so essentially, I would say you have to put together all these bits and pieces, and then you, you then you can start to reconstruct what is a really interesting debate over these questions, even in the 17th century, even when you have censorship of the press. Mm-hmm. Okay, so. It's not as if it's not as if Locke was um, perfect. It's not like his hands are entirely clean. He wasn't as anti-slavery as maybe we would want him to be. But he certainly wasn't promoting it, and he was running risks by opposing it. Like it's definitely safe to say that, right? That's safe to say. Both of those things, right? Exactly. And it's also the what is what is the danger here? What is what is the risk that we're running when? we misunderstand these texts. Why is it important to understand who really did support slavery, who really did allow themselves and promote the idea that Africans are subhuman um, and, and who was opposed to it? Like what is, what is the danger in, in taking Kendi at his word? The danger is that we lose the ability to actually see the legal foundations, the philosophical foundations that underlay theories of human rights and of democracy. <laughs> um, and even, of, we might even say, the scientific method. Because in the case of John Locke, his work has implications for all three, profound implications for all three. His essay concerning human understanding is considered one of the most important texts of the Enlightenment and was read all over Europe. It um, it makes an argument about how we can understand truth that isn't just based on the received wisdom that you hear from, from the pulpit or from powerful kings and makes an argument about people being able to make their own judgments, which, which 
you know, it connects to his ideas about, about government based on the consent of the government, or we would now call democracy and all these ideas about rights. He's, he's not the only one saying them, but if we, if we take these theories, which we still read, which still in some ways undergird and help to shape our legal system. And we say, no, no, these are, these are problematic. He was actually just supporting slavery. It, it actually pulls out a powerful claim to rights in the present. And not only that, in legally, at least it helps to um, undermine um, a foundation, which we have, you know, modern foundations for understanding claims to rights, period. It sounds ridiculous, but we could actually end up moving back towards the kind. I mean, if you say, if you will, liberalism and the Enlightenment are responsible for slavery and racism, you actually get led back towards monarchy or authoritarianism, or you, you lose the kind of logical and legal claims to help protect against those kinds of dictatorial rule. The other point has to do with modern education. I mean, Locke is crucial to making arguments for education for, in the end, everyone. I mean, his essay concerning, um, his essay on education, which he published just after the essay on human understanding, um, it really focuses on the education of one elite young man. On the other hand, it really has implications for education for everyone, and he's explicit about that. Um, and as public education grew in America after the revolution, they were using Locke's theories about education to help justify the expansion of public education. The idea, if you're going to have some semblance of democracy, people need to be educated so they can make good decisions. And people like Thomas Jefferson made that argument, like why you shouldn't exclude, why you should be more inclusive in your conception of who has a right to vote, for example, who can become a citizen. So what I'm saying is these, these debates are all intertwined with some of the best um, um, things about that. Some of the most important things that underlay our modern educational system, as well as, ideas about governance. So if you, if you simply, if you say this is the origin of racism and slavery, then you, you end up wanting to throw them all out. It undermines even the modern university education period. Where do you go for the source of ideas about human rights? We assume almost today that everyone always had these ideas, but no, 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 they didn't always have these ideas. Right, and we assume that because we've obliterated the parts of the the sources that would have told us otherwise. But I think that it's important it's important to understand the the claim that Kendi is making, which is not just like the specific local claim that Locke was racist and this was an instance of his racism. Um, you you've just implied this, but I I just want to like say it ex- explicitly. He's he's saying that he was fundamentally racist in a way that taints all of his ideas. And because it taints all of his ideas, um, these tools that Locke and others like him have bequeathed us to help us push forward are actually um, there repulsive and not conducive to liberalism or whatever, or enlightenment, let's just say enlightenment. Um, And so we can't use them anymore. And if we can't use those tools, then we don't have the tools anymore. We don't have the sources that we need to depend on in order to 
continue the work that I think Kendi is trying to do, which is to move to move forward, which is kind of ironic, right? Like it seems like it's a little bit um, it's counterproductive for him. It's actually counterproductive. And I think he's struggling with that in his his following about how to be an anti-racist. And I'm deeply sympathetic with what he's trying to do um, and what scholars like Charles Mills are trying to do, for example, um, who is a, a philosopher who, who tried to identify, rate, equate racism with, with liberalism as well, although he was more subtle about it. Um, Mill's response ended up being, we need a more radical form of liberalism and the Enlightenment that pushes further than what Locke had, and we can still build on that. So in other words, he didn't throw out all of those ideas. And I think in some ways, Kendi is trying to do that with his follow-up book in a way, except that he wants to just base it in a modern order without thinking about the intellectual roots of these ideas. I think it becomes easier to make anti-racist arguments when you deal with this past in more complex ways. Um, what I mean by that is, is that Abram Kendi is primarily a scholar of the 20th century and the 21st century. And he's looking for the origins of some of the racism is in the past. And, and he did it in a relatively, he, he isn't really a, a scholar. I mean, he didn't pretend to me and that's not really his specialty of the 17th and 18th century. This material is difficult. People like me who've been reading this for, you know, so long, it's hard to know your way about it all around it all. But realizing that these Questions were really complex and debated in the 17th century and in the 18th century, I think helps us have a better foundation for having the tools we need in the debates of the 21st century. Right, because we're, we're continuing a long tradition of trying to excise the, the bigots among amongst us. It's not as if we're it's not as if we have to reinvent the wheel here because there there's a tradition. Um, it's always been a struggle. Sometimes the struggle has been harder than at other times. But right now, we're continuing to do the same thing that we've been doing, or that people have been doing for a very long time, which is fighting over these things, and they're worth fighting about. Exactly. So treating the past as, as a, it's relatively simple and everyone agreed, actually, it doesn't, it doesn't, it actually makes it harder for us to have these arguments in the present it feels hopeless. It feels hopeless, right? Yeah, it, it really does feel hopeless. It's just a sin, right? If it's an original sin, well, you can't get rid of original sins. You just ask penance, and then you keep doing it. It actually becomes a kind of opening for continuation as opposed to here are the people and the laws and the policies that undergirded this. This is where they came from. These were the arguments about them. Here's how we can counter it. Right. That's much, that's a much more um, optimistic way to go forward. And it, it gives you more tools in order to. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Holly. You're welcome. That was fun. Um, all right. I'm, I've been so glad to have this conversation with you, and I hope I hope you write for us again soon. Okay, take care. Bye.
so much for listening. If you are a subscriber, you know that you can access Holly's essay along with all of our issues past and present on our website. If you are not a subscriber, head over to libertiesjournal.com and subscribe.